This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. This is The Feed, York Region's longest-running and exclusive news magazine. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome. On the show, billions for health care, GTA flyers flock to Buffalo Airport, and the fundraiser for homeless youth. But we begin with the Honorable Dr. Jean Augustine. 29 years ago, a committed and courageous first-term member of Parliament introduced a motion that was passed unanimously by the House of Commons to recognize February as Black History Month. And so it began in February of 1996. And the person who made history is the Honorable Dr. Jean Augustine, who actually initially entered the record books after becoming the first African-Canadian woman to be elected to the House of Commons as a member of Parliament. She is our esteemed guest here on the feed. Jean Augustine, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Anne. It has been a pleasure to know you and to know of the good work that you're doing, making sure everyone is informed. And you do the exactly the same thing. So let's rewind a little bit. Let's go back mm, 29 years ago. And how did you end up being such a big part of this motion that went before the House of Commons. How did that come to you? How did it happen? Because, and I was a dedicated teacher, and I was always interested in ensuring that uh, the students before me and my community knew about each other. Because, you see, we were, we were talking about a fair and a just uh, and an inclusive society, at the same time, I saw nothing in the textbooks and nothing uh, in the modules that we taught in social studies to or students that would speak to indigenous peoples, treaties, uh, residential schools, or about the coming of black Canadians to Canada. And so I was always passionate about that. So when the opportunity came in the House of Commons to, um, to put that motion forward, um, I just jumped at it. Yeah. I, I, I totally understand. And, and that was 29 years ago when discussions about uh, racialized communities and about discrimination and about anti-black racism, that just really wasn't being discussed at that point, was it? Exactly. The, um, when I speak about uh, the early days in Toronto, I talk about the fact that we didn't have a Charter of Rights and Freedom, we didn't have Landlord and Tenant Act, we didn't have um, school boards talking to parents, et cetera. And so these were gradual things that we had to work at and be, um, be activists around to make sure the systems changed, that uh, people were addressing those issues, especially those issues that faced our community, that faced the black community and faced black young people in the school system. And this is why I'm so, I am not only so pleased about the fact that we do have Black History Month celebrated from coast to coast to coast, but also that we heard from the provincial government that they're now um, asking that black, um, black history be taught in grades 7, 8, and 10. 
And it's one of those things, Jean, where you just think, why didn't this happen sooner? It makes so much sense. May I ask you your experience when you came to Canada? And I believe it was in the 1960s. What did you face as a woman, as a black Canadian? Well, there were difficulties on all sides. One is um, when you come from a tropical environment straight into um, into a winter, wintry um, type environment, the issue of getting the correct clothing, making sure that you're well equipped for um, for the winter and winter weather. Uh, the other was uh, finding uh, things in the department stores, like whether it was the right shade of powder for the face or whether it was the right uh, shade of stockings for the feet. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those were, you know, they, when one thinks about it now, it just seems as though it's, um, it's a small thing. But in those days, they were big things for people of color. And then, of course, where do I find community? And what are the community engaged with um, at the time? And how can I integrate myself? not only into the black community, but into what I consider to be a Toronto community. So those, there were challenges there. And um, at the same time, I was prepared to, um, I knew that I was staying. I was not just doing the one year as part of the Caribbean uh, domestic scheme and then going back. I knew that I was going to be making Canada my home. I came as a British subject in those days. Grenada was um, was uh, constitutionally we we you know we had British passports, and um, I came also um, determined that I would I would participate fully in Canadian society. So it was difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. And 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 so you persevered and you broke through ceilings and you you managed to climb over barriers and you did it all pretty much on your own. How did you continue to stay strong through this and how did what kept you going? Well, there is something that uh that we say in Grenada, the fire in the belly. <laughs> yes. The issue of, um, I learned very early, the issue of service, that you have to give back to community, you have to participate. Um, the old saying, no one is an island, and that we have to find um, allies, and uh, also be have some um, ideas to what you want to accomplish, where you want to go, what you want to see happen. How can you make things happen? Because you are now in the midst of whatever the activities were. And so it's, I couldn't, and that was the way I was raised and, and the way that, um, uh, that I grew, uh, I grew up in the Grenada sense, you had to participate, you had to put your hand in. You can't sit on the sideline. You know, I find it interesting that you, your story is is probably the the fundamental foundation of Black History Month, and and I know that the purpose of Black History Month is to understand and hear the stories of of other uh, people of color who've made a difference in the, our world, in our country. Why is it important that we, as a nation, understand the contributions of Black Canadians? 
And this is a this is a quintessential question because if we are to um, to to look at our society, we have to look at all the players in the society. We have to know each other. We have to understand each other. Whether you're Polish or you're Ukrainian or you're whatever nationality, we pride ourselves as Canadians as being a diverse society. And our diversity, if our diversity is our strength, as we say, and diversity is our pride, then it's important that all the diverse groups know and understand each other. And um, when we don't focus on the groups and understanding other peoples and other groups in the society, then Canada loses. And so one of the things we have to do is look at the fact that black history is Canadian history. Yes. You cannot write the history of Canada and not include the contribution of black Canadians to the development of Canada. And so we have to know. I have to know about the Italians, or the Italians have to know about the African Canadians. The African Canadians have to know about the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have to know about, you know, etc. We have to learn each other's history. It's interesting, Jean. The world is is in turmoil in so many respects, with war, with financial issues, with with uh, there's there's still a, a starvation going on in certain parts of the world. It's a tough time for those who inhabit the planet. How important and why is is Black History Month so significant, particularly in 2024? Well, I think. Um if we go back to an expression that I heard when I was growing up, I never understood it till later. And in um, um, around the George Floyd um, situation and around COVID, it became quite clear to me the issue of um, the global village that we live in a global village. What and what hurts one, what affects one, affects all. And so it's important for us to understand each other and each other's history. It's important for us to understand and to know so that we could respect each other. And um, it's, it's so important. I mean, when, um, when we hear the negative things about the developing world or, the, or um, we hear things said about those countries, that are African countries, it's important that we understand or we have people understand the history and what has come out of the continent and what the continent can offer and what people from the continent can offer. So again, we have to learn about ourselves and the world. We have to see ourselves as global citizens. And if we are global citizens, if we are in a global village, then we have to know the players in the village. You have spent most of your life in the pursuit of social justice, and you are still doing that. Uh, I, I know how involved you were in the refugee housing crisis that hit the streets of Toronto just recently. Why is there still this passion for people that you have? And it, it's never-ending, Jean. And I think my, my passion is around the whole issue of justice. 
and injustice, fairness and and unfairness. And um, and I want to see the society that we claim to be, because we keep saying as Canada, you know, the fair, the just, the inclusive society. And so my modus operandi always is to call us on the rug and say, are we fair here? Are we being just here? What do we have to do here so that we could identify with what we say we are as Canada? And what was happening on the streets, yeah. on Peter Street downtown, was not Canadian, was not the kind of welcome that, that Canada and Canadians want to give to people who are coming and asking us for, um, for status. The people who are seeking shelter are coming and then we have them sleep on the streets of Toronto. I couldn't just sit here and watch the news, watch uh, what was going on and not get involved. Jean, your voice is strong. It's powerful. You are active. You are a fighter. What is your message right now? In the middle of Black History Month, what is your message to Canadians right now? It's important that Canadians realize that we are in this global village. What hurts one hurts all. It's important for Canadians to realize that we have a responsibility to be, as they say in common talents, to be our brothers keeper. It's important for us to all recognize that peace is so essential in our world. To recognize that there are people who come and join us in this country because they're fleeing. They're running away from conflicts and other things in other parts of the world. And that they cannot bring those conflicts here because what they're looking for is, is, is a safe haven and that Canada should be a safe haven where we respect each other, we know each other, we recognize each other, and that we have to constantly work at and work for a world at peace. You put that beautifully. The Honorable Dr. Jean Augustine, thank you for advocating for all people. Thank you, Anne. Coming up next on the feed, investing in healthcare right here in York Region. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Anne Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Ontario Premier Doug Ford signed a $3.1 billion health care funding deal late last week, a full year after the feds had promised to boost health transfers to the provinces. So why the delay? What impact will $3.1 billion have on Ontario's flagging health care system? Can the feds tell the province how and where to spend the money? So many questions. Dr. Alan Grill is Chief of Family Medicine at Oak Valley Health's Markham Stouffville Hospital. 
Dr. Grill, welcome to the feed. There is a dire shortage of family physicians in this province right now, and apparently it's only going to get worse. Do you think this money will help solve the problem? Thanks so much for having me again on your show. So I think the announcement that we heard uh, last week really recognizes the urgent needs in primary care. And I think the goal of the funding is to ensure that all Ontarians have access to a family doctor. I mean, right now, 2.3 million people are without a family physician, and that number is expected to grow to 4.4 million in 2026. So this is not something we should be proud of here in Ontario. And obviously, when we don't have access to family physicians, you know, people end up going to the emergency room, it gets crowded. We've even seen some emergency rooms have to have to shut down because we have a lack of family doctors in those areas. So do I think that the money is going to solve all the problems overnight? You know, that that's too hard to tell. I mean, $3.1 billion is fantastic, but more details are going to follow in the weeks and months to come. But what is encouraging by the news is that the government says it's going to increase support for family doctors and primary care providers, especially through teams and administrative support. And I think, you know, those ideas have been floated around for a very long time. And I think it's it's time to put those ideas into action. And who makes the decision as to where this money is going to be spent? Is it the federal government? Is it Trudeau? Or is it the provincial government? My understanding is that the provincial government will receive the money and develop a budget on how it's going to spend it. And obviously, there's probably an agreement between the federal government and the provincial government in terms of check-ins and accountability. My understanding is that health data is going to be shared uh, between the provinces who have signed deals with the federal government uh, and the Ministry of uh, of Health federally. So I think those details will all be made made aware to the public as, as time moves on. But my understanding is that the province is really going to be implementing this funding. So can we review what I see as part of the deal? And uh, and we'll just go one by one. So the first part, Ontario must create, as you've mentioned, new primary health care teams. So that includes family doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses, pharmacists, and social workers. What does that mean to the average patient? Yeah. So it's really, that part was really welcome news. And, and I have to say that the Ontario government, aside from you know, this $3.1 billion deal, they did just announce in their, in their upcoming budget for, for 2024 that $110 million uh, is being earmarked to expand sort of team-based care. And when we talk about team-based care, we're talking about a situation where instead of having your, your classic family doctor office where you have maybe a few doctors, you might have a couple admin assistants, maybe a nurse, here you have funding to hire additional health care professionals like social workers and dietitians and maybe a pharmacist, nurse practitioners, all working together sort of under one roof or, or in a couple sites that are geographically close to each other, and they're all sharing in the care for the patient. So the patient is central, and you have all of these other colleagues working around for the patient to help them navigate the healthcare system and provide them with the care that they need. The reason why this is so important is because you know, family physicians can't be everything to everybody anymore. We have patients that are getting older, patients are living longer, their cases are becoming more complex, we have to spend more time with them, you know, they need access to other services outside our scope that, you know, years ago the demand was much, much lower. And so in order to do that without completely stressing out the family physician or even giving them the time that they need, you need to have access to a team. So, for example, if I see a patient 
who has complex, a complex problem and they're on numerous medications. I can actually delegate some of that work to the pharmacist in my family health team so the patient can meet with the pharmacist, go through some of the meds, and that might save me an hour of time to either see a new patient in my practice or see somebody that otherwise would be waiting longer to get in. And that's just one example. You know, we have a social work team that does a lot of mental health work that's really needed right now with our youth and our adults, just given everything that's going on with respect to increased cost of living, et cetera. And so having access to that team where it's paid for by the government is really a huge thing for patients. So, you know, seeing those teams expand over time will be, will be great. And again, it will also speak to equity. Instead of there only being 30% of Ontarians that have access to this team-based care, we're hopefully going to get up to 100%. And that's what we need. We need equal access for patients. When will the patient begin to see the necessary changes that will support our struggling healthcare system here in Ontario? That's a really great question. And the answer is, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, you're right. Some of the things we've talked about have taken time, but let's talk about some of the things that the government also mentioned in this announcement that might be able to be implemented in a shorter term. So the first thing is they want to try to remove barriers for foreign trained docs. And that means that you can either get their foreign trained education credentialed quicker and you can remove some of the red tape so you can simplify their licensing program. So we obviously have to make sure that wherever they were trained is, is, in, is up to the standards here in Ontario. But we can put things in place relatively quickly to make sure that that gets done. And then if you add to the workforce, automatically there's going to be more people, especially family doctors or even nurse practitioners, that can take on more patients. So immediately that's a, that's a short-term solution. I think that the other thing that they're talking about, or at least that is being advocated from the Ontario College of Family Physicians, is how can we reduce the administrative burden on primary care providers, whether that's a family doctor, a pediatrician, a nurse practitioner. You know, right now there's been studies to show that people like me, we're spending about 19 hours a week on administrative work. So that might be filling out insurance forms, setting up appointments because people need sick notes because they've missed some work from their employer, you know, sending referrals out and really trying to navigate the system to figure out what's the shortest wait time. And if, and if a specialist can't see my patient, how do I redirect it? I mean, these things take hours. Yeah. When I was in training, they trained me to be able to go out and spend time face-to-face with patients. I don't want to be spending 19 hours a week on all of this paperwork. There's obviously going to be some. You know, I've got to check labs, and I've got to make sure I've got to make some patient phone calls. But to spend all of this time on administrative work, it's turning people off of primary care. And when you have all of that time that, that could be better seeing patients, imagine if that was removed, I could spend extra time actually focused on the patient in front of me. So the government can use some of that funding to reduce the admin burden. One great example I keep telling people is, let's centralize the referral system. Instead of my staff and the office down the road competing to figure out where patients can go for care, let's have a centralized system set up by the government where Every patient referral gets sent in there. They figure out how to get the patient in, how to, how to get the, the shortest wait times. And now all of a sudden, I've got all this extra time within my office to focus on my, my patient, whether that's seeing them, putting them in a program, as opposed to this administrative headache. Well, that makes sense, dollars and cents. So let's talk about York Region specifically. How much money will York Region receive from this commitment? And how will it impact Oak Valley Health? 
Yeah. Well, that's more of a, I think, an important question to ask Ontario Health because I think Ontario Health will likely be responsible for figuring out how all this money gets divided up. You know, there's, there's a, Ontario Health is set up into regions and there's, there's good uh, primary care and other health care representatives of each region that will probably talk about how to, how to do this funding. And there will be lots of communication between hospitals and hopefully home care because that also needs an infusion of dollars primary care. Hopefully we're all going to work together to try to sort out how to spend this money. But I think the other key thing too is not to forget mental health, right? There was an announcement talking about these youth wellness hubs because we know a lot of adolescents go through a lot of stress. The pandemic really set a lot of kids behind with anxiety. So there's supposedly going to be more access to mental health for that population. There's supposed to be more money for psychotherapy. You know, in my practice, I'm very fortunate. If a patient doesn't have private insurance, I can get them some psychotherapy that they need through the social workers and my family health team. But if a patient who's not in a team-based practice needs psychotherapy and they can't afford it, it's very hard to access because most of that is not covered by OHIP. So between those things and more money into addiction programs, I'm really hoping that we involve all of the community partners, especially through the Ontario health teams that have been set up to try to set up a situation where every patient is connected You've got a hub. You can navigate them through the system. And so I think Ontario Health will coordinate that, and I'm looking forward to some of the leadership meetings that will take place to figure out where we can put the money, as you said, short-term, medium-term, long-term. Dr. Alan Grill, Chief of Family Medicine, Oak Valley Health's Markham Stovall Hospital, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. The number of homeless young people on the streets of York Region is increasing, but 360 Kids is committed to helping those in crisis. Tina Cortez now with that story. Leslie Sims is Director of Resource Development at 360 Kids. Leslie, welcome back to the feed on 105.9 The Region. Thanks, Tina. I'm so glad to be here. For those who are unfamiliar, remind us about the work of 360 Kids. Well, 360 Kids is a very important charity here in York Region, providing a host of support services to young youth uh, who find themselves in a housing crisis or even at risk of being homelessness uh, in York Region. And how many young people does 360 Kids help? So annually, over the last couple of years, we now serve uh, upwards of 3,000 kids that are coming to us uh, throughout all of our programs, whether it be housing, employment, or education, or just as, just basic needs coming to us for you know items like food, clothing, counseling. We're now serving uh, almost 3,000 young people every single year. That number seems shocking, especially in an area as rich, and I mean that in a variety of ways, like York Region. It definitely does seem that, but, you know, York Region is a really vast geographic area, and uh, a majority of people and young people are coming to us for either housing or employment needs, and just, you know, individuals who are living on the streets. And we take for granted that we live in such an amazing community, but... Uh, homelessness is persistent in our community, certainly in most recent times, and we see that every single day. So we see hundreds of kids who are connecting with us, and we see anywhere between 50 and 100 kids daily 
coming to our drop-in center in Richmond Hill, just looking for that basic support needs. So homelessness isn't just a downtown Toronto issue? It definitely is not a downtown Toronto issue. Uh, It is very much uh, an important issue here in York Region. Uh, You know, affordable housing, we are in a crisis of with affordable housing, uh, young people especially are not able to be able to afford even rental apartments nowadays. And so we see more and more young people who are trying to be independent and who are living on their own, who are really struggling with being able to afford just basic needs, um, even if they are working a full-time job. Um, many of them are working minimum wage jobs. And just in now, uh, today's day, it's just not cutting it to be able to pay all of the bills. Um, when while one bedroom apartment in York region can cost someone uh, even as much as like $1,600 or more. Tell us a bit more specifically about the support services and the programs. I'd be happy to. So we focus our uh, efforts and supports in four key areas of support. That's housing, employment, education, and health and well-being supports. So in terms of housing, we offer quite a wide range, everything from community housing through our Night Stop program, and that's when we place young people who we actually don't want them to come into the shelter, but if we can divert them from accessing the shelter by allowing them to stay in a supportive family home temporarily for a couple of days uh, until we can find them a better solution or mediate with the family, that's our first priority. We then have emergency housing programs called Connections, and that's where we have uh, 14 individual youth can live with us. And then we have a number of um, transitional uh, apartments for young people as they transition to full independence where we're helping them um, gain those independent living skills and life skills that they need to be able to live on their own fully out in the community. Employment, young people come to us uh, certainly looking for employment because uh, they need to be able to have a job. And so we, we run six streams of employment programs uh, geared to what the individual needs of the young people are. And, and we just opened up a new hub for young people in Newmarket um, that focuses on our employment programs and specifically our culinary program called the Every Bite Matters program, which teaches kids the skills to be able to work in the food services industry. Then we have our education programs called iGrad, and that's a school that's located in within our home-based drop-in center in Richmond Hill that has a full-time teacher that's dedicated to help kids actually achieve their high school diploma. And they'll work with them um, one-on-one to be able to get their credits when they're not in the traditional uh, education system to continue getting those credits and achieve that Ontario Secondary School Diploma. And then basic uh, health and well-being supports, that's all of our community support programs that we offer, everything from youth outreach workers that will connect with young people out in their schools or in their communities when they're in need of supports. Uh, Our counselling programs are very vibrant because we offer a hybrid opportunity for young people to get counselling supports from our professional counselors, either in person or if they're feeling more comfortable to do it online, they can do that through um, like Zoom technology. Um, We also have 
Family and Natural Supports is our newest program that we've been piloting over the last year. And that's really connecting and working with families and young people who are um, trying to mediate and try and keep the kids in their homes and try and work with families and help them in however that they need um, to mediate the issues of that family breakdown that's happening. And then, of course, just basic needs like our drop-in center and our Vaughn and York Region pop-up programs that are there and available to provide food and clothing and hygiene items for young people at the drop-in center or our York Region pop-up is a mobile car and staff that go all throughout York Region and connect with young people to try and provide them the support that they need right there in the communities of where they're staying. So we offer quite a lot of programs, but you know that's kind of the full spectrum of the 360 model with 360 kids. It's about surrounding kids with all the supports that they need to be successful in life uh, to be able to help them be stable and move forward um, out of that period of crisis. And you talk about moving forward, Leslie. Is it safe to assume then that these services, the drop-ins, the programs, they're not intended to be long-term solutions, are they? They're not intended to be long-term, no. They're, they're intended to be able to be used until the young person feels comfortable and have that, the supports that they need to be able to live independently. Our goal is always either family reintegration and having kids because we know that the best place for a young person to be is in a family or a natural supportive environment. But if not, then, you know, we help them be able to learn to live independently. And once they feel like they have the skills and the knowledge and, you know, the resources to be able to do that, that's when they, they kind of move forward. But some people can be with us for, you know, one, two or three years if they're moving throughout our housing programs and progressively getting more and more independent and, and need, you know, little supports from us until they fully kind of reintegrate um, you know, into society. But, you know, we do have kids that still connect with us, even if they are living independently. They still, we are that family to them. Mm-hmm. They will still call us back and tell us how they're doing and stay connected because they've really felt that kind of family um, connectedness and that relationship that has been built over the years. But there, some can be very short-term um, connections with us and some can be, you know, much longer term. Well, those connections are obviously a reflection of the work that you do at 360 Kids. It takes a lot of money to be able to, you know, provide housing and provide all the supports that we need to young people. Um, And we do that through, you know, various ways of connecting with individuals and community groups and fundraising events that we run. So tell us about one of those fundraisers I know is coming up. It's the 360 Experience. Yes, it's our 11th year and it's our signature event. The 360 Experience is an amazing fundraising event that people can participate in, and it's an overnight experience. Uh, over the last couple of years, we've actually uh, grown the, the event to kind of branch off into three different streams. People can participate in our traditional event, which is an, you know a person um, registers and they actually take a scenario throughout the evening and they spend an evening on the streets um, as they were, you know, following the scenario, they're visiting different shelters and learning about the important community agencies that are out there and what supports are available 
to young people who are homeless and then and they then then themselves have to you know navigate and figure how do I stay warm where do I go what do I do throughout the night and they'll be experiencing just you know for a short one night some of the challenges that young people face in terms of where do they sleep where do they stay warm how do they stay you know, get food in the middle of the night, etc. And people raise money to be able to do that. We also branched off last year to offer a corporate challenge team uh, environment, which is not a completely overnight event, but we do it at the Community Safety Village at Bruce's Mill. And it's where teams are put through kind of uh, different scavenger activities throughout the night. And they participate as well. But on the one location but throughout Bruce's Mill where they will, as teams of 10, can go through and they'll be doing various activities that, again, young people might find themselves faced with. Things like, how do you stay warm? How do you build a shelter? Um, you know, walking, the, the isolation and the loneliness of one just walking by themselves late at night and and thinking through, through things like that. And then people can also participate virtually. And we have a lot of school groups and teachers that do that throughout York Region, and they've been uh, incorporating that into their curriculum. And uh, they, we send information out through texting with videos and instructions on how you can also learn about homelessness and, and what young people have to face. And they also do the various activities either on their home properties or in and around their neighborhood. If our listeners want more information, want to participate, want to donate, how can they do that? Yes, we would love to have people come and join us on Thursday, February the 29th at the 360 Experience. They can go to 360kids.ca and right on the front page you'll see information about the 360 Experience to learn more or even if you d- can't participate, if you would be kind enough to donate and pledge a participant or just pledge to the event, we truly appreciate it to allow us to be able to raise the funds that we need to to be able to offer the services to young people. Such a good cause. Leslie Sims, 360 Kids, thank you for joining us on the feed. Blue Door is also helping to raise much-needed funds for the homeless. Details from Glenn Perkins. What would you do or where would you turn if you suddenly found yourself homeless and had no one for support or nowhere to go? Michael Braithwaite, the CEO of Blue Door, says his organization is there to help. Blue Door is an organization that operates in the northern part of the GTA, in uh, York Region, of course, Durham Region, and Peel Region. And we focus on supporting our most vulnerable around helping them find emergency housing, transitional housing, long-term affordable housing, as well finding meaningful employment and well-paying employment and linking them to health services. And we've been doing that for the past 41 years and counting. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Ludor supports thousands of individuals each year. Through our housing programs, emergency housing, we have a construction social enterprise where we put over 200 people a year into the trades. Uh, So thousands of people through different supports each year that uh, we're supporting in York Region. And now you're doing more. I know this is an annual event, but something that members of the community can get involved with, and that's the coldest night of the year walk. Tell me about that. Yes, you know, 
government absolutely has to play a part in preventing and ending homelessness, and they do, but so does community. And we can't do this without the support of community. And the coldest night of the year event is a national event with uh, organizations across Canada, all on February 24th, doing a walk. It's a 5K walk. Ours is in Richmond Hill. And, you know, you could walk, you could run, you could do a 1K if, if that's more your speed. But we come together for a nice event. We go out in solidarity, do this walk. And, and what you do is you get uh, pledges from people so you can walk if you take part in the event. And we hope to raise 150000 for our Mosaic Interfaith out of the Cold Program, which runs in various churches and different faith organizations throughout the region. Is there an area that's blocked off for you to do this? Yeah, so we start off, uh, TMS School is very, very kind in letting us use their location. We start off there, and we actually use the sidewalks and walk down uh, 2.5 kilometers straight north on Bayview, and we turn around and come back. It's actually a wonderful route, and, and the police, our friends at York Regional Police support us, so it's a very safe night, and a lot of volunteers as well who come out and help guide people and act uh, as kind of safety uh, street crossers as we do this event. The money that's raised, how is it used? So we run a program that runs now from October through to May, Mosaic Interfaith Out of the Cold. And what we do is with the faith community and some in Richmond Hill and other places, we open up beds throughout the year and people come in, they're able to get a hot meal, clothing and housing supports, and they're kept warm and safe taken care of for the night. So we use the dollars from the coldest night of the year to support that program, to augment the dollars that come in from the region of York. Michael Braithwaite, Chief Executive Officer with Blue Door, is with us. Michael, what are the demographics of your clients? Well, you know what? Uh, Homelessness, unfortunately, doesn't discriminate. Uh, The fastest growing group that is experiencing homelessness are actually seniors, which is very, very sad. But we see people from all walks of life, and as we've read of and heard of on on your station and other media outlets, we're seeing a lot more new Canadians come through. We have families, large families. Uh, We support youth from the 2S LGBTQ plus community. And and really, just from all walks of life, uh, homelessness, unfortunately, touches them all. It is winter in Canada. I just couldn't imagine being outside, not having a roof over my head. No, and, and Glenn, when you think about even uh, you know this week where it was cold, they're not having a, a warm, safe, affordable place to escape to. I mean, that's serious illness or in some cases death, right? Um, not you know that's your physical health. Not to mention what spending night after night on the streets does to your uh, mental health because you're not getting a solid night's sleep. You're not able to take care of yourself or maybe get the medications or support you need. So home is the start of everything. Home is health, and and home is happiness for the future. Michael, remind our listeners again how they can help. If you go to our website at bluedoor.ca, check out Coldest Night of the Year. It would be amazing. Look, if you want to volunteer, that would be amazing. If you want to join a team, hey, you can join my team um, or any team. You can start your own team, be a captain, and just be a part of the solution that night. That night doesn't work. You can donate and give your time in other ways at Blue Door. Michael Braithwaite, Chief Executive Officer with Blue Door, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you.
If you would like to volunteer or donate or just find out more about the coldest night of the year walk, that online address again is bluedaw.ca. After the break, pickleball anyone? More courts are coming to York Region. That story is next. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of The Feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. One of the fastest growing sports is pickleball, and now there are more places to play in York Region. Jim Lang with the game plan. Now, unless you live in a cave, by now you know that pickleball is maybe, arguably, the fastest-growing sport, not just in North America, around the world, along with paddle. It's become the new sensation, and there is a place to play at Assembly Park in Concord, all part of something really cool, uh, the Fairgrounds Public Racquet Club, who make it easy for you to be part of pickleball and paddle. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Drummond Monroe, the co-founder of Fairgrounds Public Racquet Club. Drummond, how are you? I'm good, Jim. Thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure. It really does amaze me. There is not a municipality in the region or the province right now who are not talking about pickleball or trying to create facilities to allow more people to play it. Why has it become such an explosively popular sport? I mean, it's crazy. I've never seen a sport enter uh, the cultural hemisphere like pickleball has, and I think it's really because the barriers to entry are, are just so low. It's it's incredibly fun. It's incredibly social. It's relatively easy to play, at least to start. And other racket sports haven't had that type of accessibility. You know, if we've never played squash or never played tennis and we go out and play, we're, we might have fun, but we're not going to be very good. Pickleball, you can figure out in a matter of minutes and be playing, you know, within half an hour. And I think that's something that's quite unique. But one thing about Fairgrounds Public Racquet Club, they do, it's not pickleball as well, it's paddle. And I first heard about this. My wife was in Holland last year visiting family. She said paddle is huge there. What is paddle and why has it become almost like 1A to pickleball for when it comes to popularity? Yeah, so it's interesting. Pickleball is a, a very uniquely North American phenomenon. And when you go outside of North America, Europe, South America, Asia, you know, wherever, Paddle is, is, is everywhere. It's popping up. It's had the same explosive growth. It's not quite as easy as pickleball, but it's definitely more nuanced than, you know, if you already play racket sports, it's, it's just a really interesting sport to be able to play that combines elements of both squash and tennis. Speaking with Drummond Monroe, the core founder of Fairgrounds Public Racquet Club with locations in Concord, Etobicoke, Toronto, and Calgary. You can get more details at visitfairgrounds.com. Follow them at visitfairgrounds on Instagram. Uh, for your background, getting into it, you must realize that um, it's getting people active post-COVID is a challenge. You start this in 2022, opening in the Toronto area, and now we're seeing it move ahead in 2024 and beyond. Is this even beyond what you thought, Drummond, when you kind of started this whole concept? I think people are just looking for places to play, right? Uh, you have this, this, this broad spectrum that exists from public municipalities, as we touched on earlier, which there are few and far between, and these private clubs, which are inaccessible to the masses, and there's nothing really in the middle. And, and the middle really is some people willing to pay a little bit of money for a really great experience. And I think coming out of COVID, people are looking for social experiences that aren't based entirely around drinking and eating and being active is top of mind. So this kind of checks all the boxes. 
And for listeners that may be not aware, fairgrounds will it bridges the gap between these exclusive private clubs, which you alluded to, and the public ones. And that's the one thing about it that I find is very unique in the sports world, that it is a hybrid of the two, which is not very common at all. No, it's not. And I think, you know, the popularity of pickleball and paddle is going to allow this to be successful and work, which is, you know, people are just looking for those places to play, and, and the spectrum is so broad that really there are no options. What, what I like about it, too, is with a, an event like this and a sport like this, because it's so it's inclusive, it also sort of begets that social aspect of sports, which I think is so important that, A, you're playing the sport, but you're meeting and hanging out with other people at the same time. It's an outing. Yeah, 100%. It's just as important to sit around and have a beer or or coffee and hang out with the people you play with and it is to get active on court. I think it's building that social connection that people are looking for. To get more details, go to fairgrounds.com. And I've never seen anything like it in all my years in sports, the popularity of pickleball and paddle. I'm seeing uh, professional versions of it, competitive versions. Uh, I'm hearing it from my hockey buddies that I never thought they'd be into racket sports. That's all they talk about when they go to Florida is all the pickleball they play. It's crazy. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. It's it's really exciting, and we have our first indoor location, our first permanent indoor location opening up next Saturday. So hopefully lots of people will be able to that. Drummond, thank you so much for doing this. For people interested, go to visitfairgrounds.com, and you can get all the details how to be part of it, including the new and upcoming Assembly Park in Concord, which is going to be a game-changer for people in York region. Play pickleball, play paddle, get active, be social, be healthy, and just have fun, and that's what it's all about. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Drummond. A new survey finds that more GTA residents are saving time and money flying out of the Buffalo airport. Shaliza Bacchus with the flight details. Traveling can be stressful, and especially if you're flying out of a big, busy airport like Toronto Pearson. While it may be a bit of a drive, flying out of Buffalo airport might relieve some of that stress. Get this, 35% of originating passengers at Buffalo airport are actually Canadians. Joining the feed to tell us why many Canadians, especially those in the Hamilton and Niagara area, are considering this option is Senior Marketing Manager at Buffalo Airport, Pascal Cohen. Thank you for your time. Oh, you bet. So, Pascal, when we think about it, Buffalo, it really isn't that far from the greater Toronto area. So do you think it's worth it for Canadians to fly out of Buffalo Airport? Yeah, we are actually very fortunate that we live in an area, a binational region, where we have choices, right? So when you're flying domestic to the U.S., uh, so if you're flying from the U.S., you fly a domestic flight. So not only is that cheaper because there's no certain taxes and fees don't apply to domestic flights, but it's also faster because you don't have to clear customs and immigration at the airport, which takes far longer than doing it in your car on the bridge. So with that being said, what is the check-in and security time like in Buffalo? So typically when you get to the terminal, um, the average wait time to make it all the way through um, our checkpoint and to your gate is about 12 minutes. People can argue that clearing customs at the Canada-USA border through Niagara could take just as long as customs at the airport. What do you think? Yeah, that's really not the case. On our website, for instance, the bridge crossing. So you you do want to check which bridge you're going to go to. And of course, if it's a Friday afternoon, uh, you know, 
when when Boxing Day is happening, or maybe the the Leafs are playing the Sabres, maybe you have to pick the right bridge. But for folks who know to check the bridge crossing times, it really is not an issue. I mean, for most folks, that is minutes um, to get across the bridge. And again, keep in mind, you don't have to fill out anything um, when you cross the border with your vehicle. So if you have several people in your car, it is you show your passport and you're across. At the airport, you have to you know, have a picture taken and to say whether or not you're taking $10,000 in cash. I mean, there's all sorts of questions that just don't apply um, at the land border. And is that even the case, even if they got large luggages with them? Yeah, because that really doesn't matter. I mean, if you're saying you're flying out of the Buffalo airport, and it's the same thing the other way around. So when you have Western New Yorkers that use the Pearson airport, let's say to fly nonstop to Japan, same deal. You just say, I'm heading to the airport. Um, they'll ask, are you bringing anything in that you shouldn't be bringing in? But it really doesn't matter. They don't, you know, customs and immigration doesn't really look at your luggage unless you're you know, bringing in um, smuggled goods. Okay, good to know. And how many flights on average fly out of Buffalo Airport on a regular basis? Yeah, so there's obviously some fluctuations uh, seasonally and the, you know, the day of the week too, but roughly about 75 flights a day. Um, I mean, you can fly nonstop as far west as Los Angeles, Las Vegas and Phoenix and all over Florida. So it's all about the nonstop destinations, right? If you want to go nonstop, an airport like Buffalo will get you uh, coast to coast and to all the, the sunny places people tend to uh, like to go to. But if you do want to connect, you can get to anywhere in the world with a one-stop connect to other hubs. Well, that was my next question. I know it's probably super easy to fly within the States from Buffalo Airport, but what about internationally outside of North America? Yeah, so there the the benefits become a little less um, stark compared to flying out of Pearson, because obviously from Pearson you can fly nonstop to pretty much anywhere in the world. So here you'll have to connect through one of many gateways. We're kind of centrally located. You know, you could do an hour west to Chicago and then make it to anywhere in the world or east, obviously, New York City or Philadelphia or Boston or even a little bit south towards Charlotte or uh, Washington Dallas. So there's really those are short connections, only about an hour flight to get to those airports and then it's a nonstop to, uh, to the rest of the world. But like I said, for most Canadians, it is the leisure destinations that are domestic, you know, the Florida places, you know, yeah, Vegas, Phoenix, Los Angeles, etc. And Pascal, if our listeners want more information on how to plan their trip via Buffalo Airport, where can they go? Yeah, so if you just go to buffaloairport.com, um, that will give you right out of the, the starting page all the flight arrivals and departures. But there's also a section on that page that talks about the Canadian experience in particular. So there's a tab called Canadian Info. If you click on that tab, it will talk about how you save time, how you save money, what the best bridge crossings are, the fact that if you're on Nexus, for instance, you are part of TSA PreCheck, which gets you expedited screening. So there's a whole section geared to our Canadian customers to, to make it even more um, you know, easy to kind of explore what your options are. Well, that is fabulous. Here's another travel option for you if you want to make it easier on yourself. Senior Marketing Manager at Buffalo Airport, Pascal Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you bet. Thank you. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.